Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Good evening. Tēnā koutou, welcome to another Auckland Conversations event. The Auckland Conversations providers, you will know, an opportunity to inspire and stimulate your thinking about challenges facing Auckland of all types. Tonight we're focusing on climate change and how we can transition New Zealand to a climate resilient and productive economy. So thank you for joining us tonight. It's, um, it's very good to see you all here. We were worried that you might be out barbecuing or whatever you do in Auckland. And welcome to those joining us online for the streaming. I'm Kim Hill and I'll be facilitating the conversation this evening. A few housekeeping items. In the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound and we will be directed out of the building by ushers, which is posh, isn't it? Ushers. The bathrooms are located near the bar, which is on the left as you leave the room. No, the bar is on the right. The bathrooms, as I know, are straight over there to your left lest you be confused between the bar and the toilets. <laughs> and finally, could you turn all your cell phones off or at least mute them? A special welcome this evening to all Auckland Council elected members. Uh, glad you could join us. We would like to acknowledge our event partner, the Ministry for the Environment. Our thanks for the support. Our thanks to Auckland Conversations partner sponsor, Resine, and also thanking the programme supporters, Brookfield's Lawyers, Boffer Miskell, Architectural Designers New Zealand, New Zealand Planning Institute, MR Cagney, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. So tonight, we're going to be joined by a group of panellists representing sectors that are both affected by and taking action to address climate change. I'll, um, I'll introduce them in a moment. The format for tonight will primarily be a discussion with our panelists, but we'll start off with a presentation from the Ministry for the Environment and Statistics New Zealand on the state of our atmosphere and climate. You're welcome to tweet during the event. Use hashtag Auckland Conversations, AKL Conversations. And if you'd like to join in, we'll be taking questions from the floor during a Q&A that follows the panel discussions. You can ask questions via Twitter. The hashtag Auckland Conversations feed will be monitored. And if time allows, we will include questions during the panel discussion and the Q&A session. I'm sorry about my voice. Um, I'm hoping it won't get any worse. We always try to ensure that the Auckland Conversations events are inclusive and accessible. So, on-demand viewing of the event, a full transcript and captioning and presentations will be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the next few days. As you will hear in a moment, the scale of the climate change challenge is large. Uh, it's an existential challenge, as some have called it, and the need for action is now. Transitioning to a lower emissions 
and resilient economy will be critical for New Zealand's prosperity and everyone, everyone will have a role to play in helping the shift. It's significant that we're having this conversation in Auckland, uh, our largest, our fastest growing city. Auckland welcomes about 45,000 new residents a year. That's about 865 people each week. Bearing in mind we don't have a government quite yet. That may change. It's also significant that this is a shared event between the Ministry for the Environment and Auckland Council because it will take collaboration to affect any change and certainly the change that's required. New Zealand government, whoever it may be, needs Auckland as much as Auckland needs the government and Auckland is and will be a vital player in New Zealand's economic growth and the prosperity and our response to climate change. And as we'll hear today, Responding to climate change does not necessarily mean sacrifice. It doesn't mean sacrificing productivity. It doesn't mean necessarily sacrificing wage growth. If it's done properly, actions to reduce emissions might actually provide competitive economic advantage. And what's more, many of the prerequisites for a low-carbon transition are the key ingredients for a successful city, transport and housing choice and affordability, clean energy, provision of quality and accessible public green space, smart repurposing of waste and a high quality and safe built environment. Today, We'll hear where we're already doing good things and what more we might need to do to transition the economy to meet the challenge of climate change and take advantage of the opportunities to build the future. The future is something that people are increasingly, and for the first time in my memory, the future is becoming something that people regard with gloom and a certain ominous foreboding, and it would be good to turn that around. Today, the latest, the third, in the Ministry for the Environment and Statistics New Zealand Environmental Reporting Series was released. Can I invite Liz McPherson, Head of Statistics New Zealand, to introduce it. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tata katoa, e rau rangatira mā, tēnā koutou, e nā iwi e huahui nei, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tata katoa. As Kim says, it's my absolute delight today to kick-start the Auckland conversation on future-proofing the New Zealand economy um, by telling you about the release of our, the report today, Our Atmosphere and Climate 2017, which Vicky and I released today. It's actually the fifth in our environmental reporting series. It's, our first report together was uh, about air in 2014, and we've come a long way since then. Together, we've brought you marine and fresh water reports, plus Environment Aotearoa 2015, which gave an overview of all our environmental domains. And next year, 
Our scientists and statisticians will bring together our data and scientific evidence about land. Now, we do these reports because we want every New Zealander to have robust and trusted information about our environment. And that's because it is only through the actions that we take collectively that will create positive change. He waka ikinoa. We're all in this together. That's why the Ministry for the Environment and ourselves, Stats New Zealand, uh, report on the state of different aspects of the environment every six months and our environment as a whole every three years. Regular reports enable us to more fully understand our environment, track the positive and negative impacts of human activities over time, and identify some of the key challenges and opportunities facing New Zealand. This is a real partnership. We bring our different areas of expertise, MFE and environmental science, StatsNZ and the science of measurement and data analysis. Neither of us could do this on our own. And importantly, the environmental reporting framework that we use uses the independence of the government statistician to ensure that the reports are impartial and independent of the government of the day. In their report, A World That Counts, focused on the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the UN says the following. Data are the lifeblood of decision-making. Without data, we cannot know how many people are born and what age they die, how many men, women and children still live in poverty, how many children need educating, how many doctors we need to train or schools to build, how public money is being spent and to what effect, whether greenhouse gas emissions are increasing or the fish stocks in the ocean are dangerously low, how many people are in what kinds of work, what companies are trading and whether economic activity is expanding. Back here in New Zealand, it is our hope that data will help us unlock opportunities, solve complex problems and importantly, importantly, drive action. My hope is that the powerful combination of good science and complex data in today's report, our Atmosphere and Climate 2017, will do just that. So I'm absolutely delighted to show you video of our key findings, and it is my real hope that it will truly provide a great backdrop for your conversation tonight. Reporting looks at the pressures, state, and impacts on the environment and tracks change over time. Here are some key findings from our Atmosphere and Climate 2017. Atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have passed 400 parts per million, the highest levels in at least 800,000 years. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have increased 23% since 1972. This is the biggest driver of global warming. Global gross greenhouse gas emissions have risen 51% from 1990 to 2013. This increase in emissions has largely been driven by burning fossil fuels for electricity, heat, transport, manufacturing and construction. 
New Zealand's gross greenhouse gas emissions have risen 24% from 1990 to 2015. While agriculture makes up nearly half of our emissions, road transport has had one of the largest increases, increasing 78% in the 26 years to 2015. New Zealand has experienced a one degree Celsius temperature increase over a century. A one degree increase over a century may seem small, but it is a rapid change for the climate and already affecting natural systems slow to adapt. 2016 was New Zealand's hottest year on record. New Zealand has experienced its five hottest years in the last 20 years. New Zealand's glaciers have lost a quarter of their volume since 1977. The Fox and Franz Joseph glaciers have retreated about three kilometres since 1940. It is now too dangerous for tourists to be guided on the glaciers from the valley floor. Sea levels have risen 14 to 22 centimetres at four main New Zealand ports from 1916 to 2015. Warming oceans and melting glaciers are driving global sea level rise, threatening coastal housing and infrastructure. Ocean acidity has increased, experiencing a 0.03 pH decrease over the last 19 years. The ocean absorbs excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which increases its acidity. This can make it harder for shellfish to form shells and harm plankton, vital for a healthy food chain. 169,000 hectares of New Zealand's forest has been removed from 2000 to 2015 for other land use. In 2015, New Zealand's forests removed 67% of our carbon dioxide emissions. However, if deforestation continues to outpace the area of new forest planted, it will reduce the amount of CO2 forests removed from the atmosphere. If emissions continue unabated, Earth could warm by more than 4 degrees Celsius by 2100. The greater the warming, the higher the global risks from more intense storm events, loss of coastal settlements to drought and loss of biodiversity. Rapid substantial reduction in greenhouse gas emissions can reduce these risks. The global production of ozone depleting substances has dropped 98% from 1986 to 2015. Global action on restoring the ozone has led the ozone hole to shrink. It is expected to stop forming by the middle of this century. like the way they brought us the good news about the ozone at the end. Vicky Robertson is Secretary for the Environment, uh, Ministry for the Environment, and I'd like her to come and talk about the implications of some of what we've just seen. Surprising how much you can learn in three minutes, isn't it? And it is sobering, as Kim says. Uh, we haven't sugar-coated it for you, um, and there's some concerning numbers in there that New Zealand needs to take stock of. Uh, I just want to take a moment, though, to, to acknowledge my team and the stats team for pulling that together and pulling it together in a way that is really accessible for all New Zealanders, not just you here tonight. So thank you to the team. 
I think there is hope, though. Um, climate change is a critical global issue. It's critical for New Zealand as well. We're not a large global contributor, and people ask me that all the time. Well, what can we do? I think it's currently, you know, we are certainly affected locally by global trends and emissions. And there are things that we can do uh, domestically that are really important. It's important for us to act. One of the things I talked about today was even if we're a small player in, in reducing global emissions, New Zealand is one of the highest uh, emissions, uh, has one of the highest emissions per capita in the OECD. So we're the fifth highest. So I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well as a New Zealander. So there are things that we can do. We can influence globally, and we've done that very well. Uh, we can lead by example, and we can be world-leading in cracking some of the harder issues like methane gas. Uh, we also need to look at how we're resilient and how we adapt as a country. So this report underscores the impacts of climate change. Have a read. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, and, you know, and most importantly, though, talk to people. Uh, make it a dinner, con dinner table conversation. I know with uh, the youth of today and the millennials coming through, uh, this is something that's really, really important to them. So uh, welcome audience there. So for us, transitioning to that low emissions economy for New Zealand is really important. It's not just important from an environmental perspective, though. As a small trade-dependent country, uh, our green brand is absolutely critical for our future prosperity, and it is getting more critical for what will be our future customers. Um, I'm really pleased that Liz and I have been in Auckland today. It's been a great day partnering um, on this topic. And Auckland's really important in this. Auckland represents about 20% of emissions for New Zealand. One of the good news stories that's come out of the international efforts really has been that ozone-depleting substances. And, you know, it just shows you that if we do do things, we can make a difference. So a lot of people also say, well, what's government doing and where's government leadership in this? And I'm sure Kim will get into this later when we get in the panel, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but we have seen some really solid foundations. For me, it feels like we're at the beginning of uh, getting on the field to make a difference here. We were quick to sign the Paris Agreement, one of the first uh, countries to ratify, and now we're in the phrase of, well, how do we actually think about meeting the targets that are in that agreement? We've also worked on the emission trading scheme, and it's now, you know, that we now have an emissions, um, a, a carbon price of $18. So it's starting to shift into what we would say is an effective me mechanism. Not there yet, but, but, is, but is really moving along. We've also invested $50 million a year in the climate research, and particularly around the methane. So the Paris Agreement has come into force faster than anyone had anticipated and, and really confirms the direction for the future. The next task for government, of course, uh, when it is finally landed, is how we'll meet our missions uh, and, and our targets that we have, which most of you in this room will know what, we, what they are. One of the really significant shifts, though, is um, committing to a common understanding of the opportunities for New Zealand. So there's a couple of things that have been kicked off. Uh, one is around the Productivity Commission looking at both um, the transition path for New Zealand in terms of risk, but also benefits. There are some potentially competitive advantages for New Zealand in getting ahead of the curve about um, climate action. Um, the, the government itself has set up uh, experts around agriculture, forestry and adaptation to provide an evidence base and start to think about that pathway forward. So that will help us all navigate these challenging areas, and it is a challenge. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Um, 
There's lots of opportunities, though, and there's a lot of shift that's happening. Uh, one of them that we talk about is, um, is, you know, the New Zealand Super Fund has recently talked about moving 950 million into impact investments and away from companies with high exposure to carbon emissions. So that was part of um, Adrian all talked about building the fund's resilience. So great leadership there. What's in line for the next year? One of the things that we've done in the in the public sector is recognise that, that this is an interplay between environment, economic, cultural and social issues and really start to work together as a, as a collective accountable public service. And I know that sounds like, well, why weren't you doing that before? But let me tell you, that's not easy to achieve. So we have now got a transition hub in place, which is growing, going to look at um, how we transition to a low emissions economy. That is people from DOC, MB, Internal Affairs, LINS, MPI, Tapuna Kōkiri, MOT, and Treasury. So bringing that whole, the best of our brains together and working with uh, people who can make a difference. Um, we're looking at tra that transition through all of our sectors um, and uh, we're looking at where the gains can be made. So um, looking forward to really pushing on that. There are major developments here that are actually looking for um, how they shift. So in Auckland, for example, uh, Transform Monaco is looking at how they might uh, use smart design so that we don't lock in future emissions, which is really important. The City Rail Link is another great case study and I'm sure um, Jim might talk to that later. Um, so a decade, a decade ago, you know, we wouldn't foresee the change agents and the technologies we have today. I think the conversation we're having today is very different from even when I started in this role two years ago, and I think that is fantastic. Uh, we do know we must be ready uh, to embrace the technology, and one of the future fit farms will be um, one of the conversations that we'll be trying to uh, generate uh, and build in new business models and drive change. Uh, so to make room we must open up our perspective and I suppose one of the things we see is that it's not one single action or one you know, government leadership that's going to make the shift here, it really is the interplay between, between sectors and between people. So a bit of a system shift if you like. And maximising the benefits both from an environmental point of view and economic point of view. And reduce some of the unintended consequences that, that it might have on our social inequities if you like. So uh, we're all about mainstreaming emissions reductions and thinking about what that pathway might look like. So the prize is to bend the curve and make Aotearoa New Zealand the most livable place in the world and deliver a prosperous economy for all New Zealanders. So I just want to finish off with a question I get often, which um, um, I've, now be I've tweeted today and, and been um, cheekily um, teased about it. But one of the questions I get asked is, well, what can I do? Um, so we have helpfully put together a bit of a what can I do um, guide on our website. So go and have a look at it and um, next time you're having those conversations about, well, it's just about, you know, X, Y, Z needs to do Y, you know, something, um, maybe, maybe hook into the conversation about what all New Zealanders can do. Uh, we've launched that today, so have a look. And there are a lot of good stories on there about what others are doing. That's one of the things I've been really heartened by and you'll see a little bit of that today um, from the panel. So uh, thank you for coming. It's fantastic to see such a large audience today. Um, I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, Kim and the panel. Um, I know I've enjoyed uh, meeting her this afternoon and uh, she's already given me a bit of a bollocking. So um, <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou, tēnā koutou katoa.
She thought that was a baller king. You know, the Parliamentary Commission for the Environment, I mean, as Vicky suggested, right, I am tempted to, um, to mock the government's lack of commitment or action in dealing with climate change. But the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, while accepting that many have criticized the government's emissions target as not ambitious enough, the bigger issue, she said, is how do we chart the pathway? How do we change the direction in which we are traveling? You saw the gross figure on that video of by how much New Zealand's emissions have risen by. The net figure between 1990 and 2015, New Zealand's net emissions have risen by 64%. All the people on our panel tonight are committed to doing exactly what the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment said we should do. Change the direction in which we're traveling. Forget about the targets. Change the direction in which we are traveling. Please let me introduce them. Uh, you've met Mickey. Uh, Mickey. You see, that's how dreadful it was today between us. <laughs> You've met Vicky already. Let me introduce Rangimarie Hunia, the Chief Executive of Ngati Fatua Oreke Fai Maya, the organization charged with uh, advancing the aspirations of the hapu from social, economic, environmental points of view. Helena Sullivan is Chief Executive of Ockham Residential, which aims for affordable, quality, sustainable housing. I met somebody tonight who's bought one, no, two Ockham apartments. David Woods, Chairman of the Impact Enterprise Fund, which aims for market rate returns plus beneficial social and environmental uh, outcomes. Martin McMullen is with the NZTA, Connected Journey Solutions Director is his title. I've got no idea what that means, but innovation and new technology are his specialties. And Jim Quinn is Chief of Strategy for the Auckland Council. Please welcome them all, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, you know, Al Gore, the sainted Al Gore, said that there's a danger of moving from denial to despair without stopping on the way. And it does occur to me that given that 50% of our emissions, and let me talk to you first, Vicky, about this, 50% of our emissions in New Zealand are from the agricultural sector, and report after report after report says we have no hope of making a dent in our climate change emissions unless we change our land use, and you know what that means, right? How can anybody in Auckland, Vicky, make a difference? Um, well, one of the other key things in this report is about road transport. So it's the, one of the fastest increasing uh, emissions is in uh, road transport, so it's 78% over the period that we uh, measure. So. Uh, 
car use in New Zealand is one of the highest in the OECD and we have a quite an old fleet. So there is um, quite a bit in there that Auckland, Aucklanders could do and I think um, uh, there is uh, some interesting things that NZTA is thinking about in terms of thinking about your transport use as a service. So I think um, that would be good to hear about. Just on our agricultural emissions, um, there are three gases that are important in that, and you know, so it's not not just about land use, but also how we treat uh, methane, nitrous oxide, and carbon dioxide. And farmers who are uh, high, are really productive, are also doing very well on reducing their emissions in carbon uh, dioxide uh, use. Uh, so that's you know fantastic. The good farmers are doing that. Nitrous oxide is basically fertilizer, and we need to keep working on what what do we do about that. And methane's the hard one. Nobody in the world has actually cracked how do you stop cows and sheep burping. So even if we have fewer cows, they're still going to burp. Uh, so uh, you know a lot of research in there, and I don't think it's as far away as as we might think. So there is hope in that. Um, one of the things that's been really interesting lately is the um, in June, the Dairy uh, Action Plan Accord was uh, announced, and that is dairy farmers looking for the first time at measuring their methane emissions, looking at action plans for reducing their emissions on farms. So that's got to happen too. Just to get the elephant in the room out of the door, if you'll excuse the metaphor, can I just check with the panellists? In the interests of the climate, have any of them or would any of them be willing to give up animal products? Jim. Got me. Um, I, unlikely, I think. I, I do like them, so... <laughs> I'll do it if Jim does it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. OK, no, 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 stop it there. In the interests of the environment, you've given up animal products. Yes. Completely. No milk, no meat. Uh, no meat. Dairy, I'd be a little hesitant on, but everything else is okay. All right. I'm glad I, um, I drilled down into that one. <laughs> Helen. No, but I'm willing to shop sustainably as a consumer. Helen drives very fast cars and uses a lot of fossil fuels, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> But I commute in a lift. I'm just saying. Yes. Next. Cardano, not yet. One day, maybe. Vicky? Uh, I have reduced use of animal products. All right. I don't know whether this not is completely. sufficient, actually. You might like to mull this over in the course of the proceedings. Should we really be putting our mouths where our mouths are? Or... Is that just a step too far? Um, in the interest of finding out what is being done, or as the Parliamentary Commission of the Environment put it, how far we are along the path, let me first of all ask Helen what she thinks she's contributing in terms of Ockham Residential. Well, one of the things we... Uh trying to do at Ockham. I think medium density housing is a large part of the solution here. Um, we are building, we love building our properties on transport nodes, so we build them right next to train stations, on top of train stations, uh, right next to cycle paths, uh, so that the opportunity is there to actually live a low emissions lifestyle in terms of your journey to and from your employment. Um, 
But, and also, I think our latest, one of our developments, Daisy, uh, has no car parking at all, but it has two shared cars, which will be run as part of the They're shared car vehicles, system. They're electric vehicles, right? One of them's a, um, a hybrid, and the other is, we've provided for an electric car at the moment, we're going to just try, because there's some complications around getting electric cars in the shared scheme. Um, so we've provided for that as a future-proofing option. And also in our newer developments, we're providing for the potential to build in charging for electric cars when people are at that point, they want to actually bring them into the car parks and the buildings uh, so that they can actually do that in the future. One of, one of the reasons that it interests me what, what you're doing, and this is by no means an advertisement for Auckland Residential, but a lot of people would say people can't do without their cars. They want their gardens, they want their cars, they're going to have to live way the hell out of Auckland because there's nothing affordable. You've said if, if people can be persuaded that they don't need that stuff, then everything can be turned around. Yeah, I think so, because the thing is, proximity is the most important thing, we, I think, for housing. You know, we can all, like, I don't live, I live in Auckland, so I don't have to drive an hour and a half every night and morning to get to and from work. Now, that's why I live here, um, because I think it's one of the most awesome cities in the world, but I'm not going to spend, you know, three hours a day commuting to do it. So building houses that people can afford in places that they want to live at prices uh, in places they want to be, I think, is a distinct part of the solution to it. But, like, the data says something like 95% of the time your car sits still, and I know I live in, an in one of our developments, and I think I've driven my car once so far this week. Um, I really am going to have to make the point decision at some point that a, a car share would be a great solution for that. You know, just the money I have tied up in it is ridiculous. Second only, of course, uh, to property developers in the list of most hated people <laughs> are investment fund managers. <laughs> which, um, which brings me to David. David claims to be able to make a profit while doing good. How does that work? Thank you, Kim. I think if, if you look at the UN Sustainable Goals and the OECD's target to meet them, for us to meet all those goals by 2030, we need another $20 trillion invested. So conventional ways of funding just aren't going to get there. So what we find more and more coming out of Europe and the US, and now increasingly here in New Zealand, is people saying, we'll invest in your housing project or in this clean water project, but we want measurable environmental outcomes that are better in terms of water quality, in terms of silt levels, in terms of use of the water, drinking water, not just a financial return. And it works with a combination of government, who can often think longer than the private sector, philanthropists who often give grants to help the studies to set the structures up, and pension funds, uh, Adrian Orr was quoted earlier, and other investors doing it. So it's a combination of everybody. And this area is growing dramatically in many parts of the world, and two-thirds of the fund managers claim looking backwards the results not to sacrifice financial return they just take a bit more risk to get a measurable environmental or social outcome as well and how 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 did the results of the investment 
get measured? There are a number of independent bodies. Uh, this tends to come out of World Bank statistics and long-term statistics and organizations like that than setting themselves up. Uh, you've got an organization in New Zealand, I don't want to plug anybody, called Envirostrat, who if you look at the uh, measures for water quality and water projects and water funds, have a whole list of metrics that the borrower and the lender sit down and say, what are we going to measure against? But it requires sacrifice on the part of the individual to say, I will, I will gain, say, some of the profit in order that I will improve the, the planet? Well, there's two answers to that. One is, if you take a bit more risk, no, you don't give up. You just take more risk. But the other answer is to quantify what a, an environmental or social return is worth to you. What's it worth to give somebody an affordable house, let somebody buy an affordable house and lower health bills and improve education levels? How do you put a monetary value on that? How do you put a monetary value on better water quality? And that's where the debate is at the moment in New Zealand, and particularly with younger investors, they're saying to the stale male and pale brigade that run the financial industry, we want to see things done differently. Is this also to do with a change in the, in the accounting system, a change from measuring things in terms of GDP, or is that another issue? No, I think that's a separate issue. Right. Um, Martin. But that's coming. Hey? That's coming. It will, it, will it help? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, Martin, I was, you were talking before, and it all comes down to giving people choice, right? Not, um, I, I think the parlance these days is nudge nudging people towards things rather than shoving them towards things because it's the right thing to do. And you were telling us about an interesting um, policy that you have in Queenstown. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so on the 24th of August, we launched a, a pilot into Queenstown uh, around a, an application that gives people live transport choices, uh, regardless of the modes. Um, and you know that really wants to start to create like a mobility marketplace. So if you think, so people arrive in Queenstown, yeah. they go to somewhere and say, "How do I get from here to there?" Yeah, that's and right. And you say, "Sure, you can't get there from here." No, it's a joke. Well, you can get a helicopter. But only the so Irishman will understand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you give them a choice of what? Any mode, so any commercial or um, active mode of transport will be, be able to be procured from there. So in Queenstown, you've got the ski shuttles, the public transport, the taxis, rideshare, carpool, water taxis, um, heli-skiing, if you're into heli-skiing, um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, e-bikes, normal cycling, and also you know, walking options as well. So what, you, what we want to do is create the marketplace so people can sell their services into it, but eventually what we want to start to do is influence people's behaviors by making micro-investments into that marketplace to, you know, to encourage them to do the right mode of transport. Because I mean, what we really need, and Queenstown's a fine example of this, is um, we need to either um, get people into alternative modes of transport or increase the utilization of the vehicles that we've already got in Queenstown. And you'll be using a price mechanism for this. Would you be yeah. raising the price of the things that you don't want people to do? 
But that's what, by having a marketplace, it allows you to influence those things in the future if the pilots are successful. Right. You know, you encourage, and that's not just around transport choices, but you know, you factor in sustainability into that as well. So if, you're, if your travel choices are actually improving the environment that you're in, you may find that you may get some, some sort of incentivization in the future. If your travel choices are actually undermining the environment that you're in, you may find that there may be some cost loading put on what you want to do, but ultimately you'll have a choice either way. How, how do you feel about this, Hinier? I mean, this is, the only way people can exercise full choice in that sense is if they have loads of money, right? Otherwise, your lack of money limits your choice. Is Martin talking about a perfect world or is he talking about stuff that can really work? Oh, look, I think uh, Mark, Martin's talking from his context, and I think when we, uh, when I look at the Ngāji context particularly, tūtahi, ka mahi kia koutou, kua whakawhaiti, i roto i tēnei kaupapa, kia koutou katoa e haramai ki te whakarongo maina tēnā koutou. I think the most important part for us is that change doesn't happen overnight, Kim. Change is an intergenerational pursuit. And so when I think about the ups and downs, and we talk about generational change here, uh, to me it's about making sure that intergenerational values, philosophies and principles are sustained over generations. Uh, that's how you make the biggest difference, uh, I think, in this dynamic here. Where it comes to inequality, I think alleviating poverty and uh, environmental sustainability must go hand in hand. I, we were talking about, thank you. We're talking about the long view of Māori earlier and how that makes it, in a way, easier to imagine the consequence of actions not taken or actions taken. Do you think that that's evident in terms of what you're doing? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, when I think about Ngāti Whātua's view of the world, it's not about Rangi Māori in the current, current, current position. I've, been the in I've uh, inherited a legacy. I've inherited a view of the world. I've inherited a particular philosophy and practice. When I think about environmental sustainability, climate change and the like, uh, for us the basis of that is Papatuanuku. And we think about her. We think about her as Mother Earth. We think about her as the procreator. And we think about her in terms of where we return to uh, when we leave this world. And the question around how, you know, what do we give, uh, what is her legacy? Are we okay with creating harm for her? <laughs> with our mother, are we okay with that? Uh, I think a lot of those views and perspectives make it a lot easier to practice uh, over time. There are a whole lot of, and I think the other part for us is there has to be a level of resilience, and Vicky talked about this, right? Resilience means things might happen in this generation, but the reality is we've got to be really clear about the outcome in the long game, and I think uh, we have learned that. Uh, we are trying to adapt to that, and we are trying to uh, ensure that we move forward toward that. Can you give me an example of how? Oh, yeah, sure. Look, I think uh, 1951, for an example, Ngāti Whātūraka had quarter of an acre. That was, um, that was an urupā, so we have had loss of land, we have had land alienation, we have had poverty, we have had death, uh, we have become wards of the state, we've had, you know, we've had every single ugly circumstance that we are talking about really openly actually in, in the New Zealand context. Not more than four, two generations later, because my mum's 
was born at that time. Not more than two generations later, we've got a billion dollars and we practice what Martin's talking about. You cannot think about, in our view, intergenerational wealth creation if you don't also think about growing people at the same time. Uh, so I think you can do it. I think we have done that. Uh, and now we're also at a point where you get to a point in life where you have the means to make your own decisions. And for us, we, the biggest change we're making is when we put our own skin in the game, when we put our own investment uh, into the game, and we look for partners who actually have the same view, long-term view, about change, prosperity, and beauty of Aotearoa New Zealand. That's what I think is... Um, really beautiful about the way that we are thinking. Thank you for that. Jim, as Chief of Strategy Auckland Council, I mean, that's, that's a big title, right? You, you have to pull all these threads together. It's a city where people have different ideas, people have different aspirations. Um, I, Liz was talking before about how action needs to be collective when it comes to climate change, which is a huge umbrella term we use, right? Um, she must be some kind of socialist, right? I mean, I know neoliberalism is dead, but collective action. Can you see Auckland as a place where collective action can take place? I don't think we have much choice. I think we, we, we have to act. Um, I think Auckland's advantage, the amalgamation of Auckland's created a a collective view of the whole of Auckland rather than a scrap between eight or nine different fa factions. Um, we're, of course, in a political system which will change every term or multi-terms, um, but we've got a very strong underpinning of the Auckland plan and a long-term view, a 30-year view. I think somebody asked me earlier today, is, this, is there a silver bullet for this? And of course, there's not. You've got to do lots of little things all the time, and you've got to have some very grand long views, and you've got to stick to them, because if, if you take a faddish approach, I think you're nailed. So we're doing great small things, and you know, I just learned the, this afternoon the building we're in in Albert Street has got a Green Star 6 rating now, which is a big step, um, but it's one building, um, which is a good thing. Does everybody We'd, know what that means? Can you explain? Oh, I, I don't have the technical detail. detail. John will cor correct me, but look, it's the highest standard a building can be fitted to. We've, we've had to re retrofit this because we've moved into it. Um, but it's it's all of the the way it uses energy, the way it's fitted out, the way the cl climate control, control works. So it, it's it's a really good use of the environment. It's about having the right sort of light, lighting for the from a sustainability perspective. Effective. So we're doing things such as that. I think one of the interesting things that Vicky talked about roads. One of the big switches I think Auckland's got to get to is I. Everybody knows we've got congestion. We're all a bit relieved that our NZTA colleagues have built a tunnel for us, which has eased it a bit for now. Um, but it'll just encourage them, though, won't well, it? Well, yeah. And the big switch for me, I, I'm intrigued because where I'm, I'm uh, involved in thinking through what pricing signals we give to help people make a cho choice. We've got Auckland Transport and NZTA investing well in electric tra trains and other modes of transport. But when I talk to folk, most folks say, say to me, I really can't wait till you solve this congestion thing so that everybody gets out of my way. 
rather than what am I going to do to get out of the way? And I think if we can just flick that one switch, because we're growing, you know, we're, I think it's 90 million journeys a year now um, from a very low base. So we're really making some great strides. Our is leading, uh, has led the talk about the plastic bags. Uh, we've got the, uh, the Million Trees in initiative. So it's about doing big things that are symbols of dragging us all to think collectively about the, those so, so, sorts of outcomes. Well, um, thank you for that uh, uh, nudge in the direction of the Mayor. We'll stop for a non-commercial break now. The Mayor, of course, is en route to Paris to the conference uh, looking at cities dealing with climate change. But we have a video message from Mr. Goff. Kia ora koutou. As one of the very first signatories to the Paris Accord, New Zealand has pledged to take action to reduce emissions and limit our impact on the environment. Auckland, New Zealand's largest city with more than a third of our country's population, has an important role to play in achieving those targets. There's a lot we're already doing to reduce our emissions. We're encouraging more people, and particularly school students, to use active modes of transport with more cycle and walkways. Good for health, good for the environment. We're promoting public transport. Over 19 kilometres of bus lanes have been rolled out in the last year, and we're trialling electric buses. Train patronage has soared to 20 million passenger trips a year, with three years ahead of target. We've replaced diesel trains with electric trains, saving over 9 million litres of diesel a year and reducing carbon emissions by 80%. And we're extending electrification to Pukekohe. Once completed, the City Rail Link will reduce Auckland's carbon emissions by 268,000 tonnes over 40 years. We're supporting car sharing schemes in Auckland. For each car shared, it takes up to 13 private vehicles off the road and we're working with government to promote the uptake of electric cars. I've got one myself, quiet, clean, low cost to run. We've replaced 12,500 streetlights with LED bulbs, resulting in a 72% energy reduction. With an ambitious target of zero waste by 2040, already reducing curbside waste collection by 30%. And we've planted over 150,000 native trees already this year towards our million trees target this term. Greening our city, protecting our streams and waterways, and creating carbon sinks to reduce our greenhouse emissions. And we support energy conservation in buildings. The first stage alone of the redevelopment of the Wynyard Quarter is predicted to deliver an excess of four gigawatt hours worth of electricity savings, which equates to 687 tons of carbon. It's a good start, but there's so much more to do. Council can't do it alone. All of us need to act in the best interests of our planet and future generations. I'm sorry I can't be with you today, but I wish you well in your discussions around how we can create a more sustainable Auckland. Electric vehicles, let's talk about electric vehicles. Um, the Parliamentary Commission for the Environment, Jan Wright, says this is the number one thing we can do. And certainly, as Phil Goff said, 
in Auckland, there's a huge scope for having electric vehicles. Is there the infrastructure for them? If not, when will it be there? Are you best able to talk to this, Jim? Matt and I, I'm sure, could ha have a crack. Um, I think most folk who are, are the, the first hurdle people go through is range anxiety. Yeah. Uh, that's mostly solved, I think, unless you're going a long, long way. Um, and most folk will charge at home and return home. So the public requirement is much less than I think people intuitively think. But there are uh, stations or whatever they're called being installed. There's, I know I went to an opening one in Newmarket. So the capability is there. I think like every industry, um, we seem to have, when the opportunity was there to have a single way of getting things done, industry have given us a few. So there's an adapter requirement on some cars, I believe. Um, but the point is, that it's, it's, the ability is there, it's about people being prepared to go there now. We need not only for people to have electric vehicles, but also to share electric vehicles with others, right? There's no point in everybody driving an electric vehicle because we'll just have to build more roads and that will divert resources from something else, even though greenhouse gases will be saved, presumably. When will electric vehicles be cheap enough and av available enough to, to people? Do you know? Well, they're getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. I think the last time I looked, you can pick up a 2013 Nissan Leaf on Trade Me for less than $10,000 now. Yeah. Um, whereas actually you factor the cost of not paying fuel in over three years, it will have paid for itself. Yeah, but, um, you, need, but you need the money in the first place, right? It's like solar power. Absolutely. You know, the investment needs to happen before the payoff. But that goes with all car payments. And that's where I think one of the things that's, you know, will be realistically achieved in the next 10 years or so are shared fleets of cars, whether that's, you know, um, things like City Hop today, and then as the technology becomes more mature, it's moving to shared fleets of autonomous or semi-autonomous semi vehicles, but they are still just cars. We really need to get, um, change people's behaviors to get them being more active, using public transport, and then as a further mitigation is shared fleets, and then the last result should be driving your own car, right? Do you need more? Sorry, Helen, you wanted to say something. There are some practicalities around it. There's a report recently about a Sydney apartment building where they've got three Teslas, and when all three of them are charging, the lift doesn't work. Nor <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. the toasters, I imagine. I imagine that's uh, a problem as well. <laughs> but nevertheless, the, the, the idea behind electric cars is kind of brilliant. Is the government putting enough incentives into encouraging people to get into them. Any ideas? I haven't seen a lot. I guess I think the practicalities around the infrastructure are probably the big thing here. We've looked at it in our apartment buildings um, because where are you going to... It's all very well if you've got a house and a garage and you can plug it in when you get home. Yeah. But if you've got an apartment building with 60 car parks in it, how do you wire up 60 car parks what's the, you know, if we'd put in sufficient electric car charging for all 60 of those car parks to be charging, we'd have had to put another quarter of a million dollars worth of transformer on the site, which is probably not going to be used for a while, and there's a whole trade-off around housing affordability there, and I think those conversations and the joined-up thinking around that is probably where local and central government have to take a real lead role in terms of what's the best outcome for New Zealand Inc., and how do we achieve that? Because the short-term decision may be quite a different one to the long-term decision. One of the suggestions, sorry, Becky, carry on. I was just gonna say, one of the issues is supply. So, um, you know, how do you actually create 
create enough uh, demand in New Zealand for electric vehicles, so therefore the price will come down and therefore the infrastructure won't be such a big uh, barrier. And I mean, we do have a goal of 64,000 uh, electric vehicles by 2021, which is a good start. 30 uh, private sector firms have, have also uh, pledged to um, basically have their their fleets committed to EVs by 2019. So I think some of this will change pretty rapidly. I think the other bit's important though um, that Martin was talking about that EVs are, the, are kind of the, the current wave of new technology, but you know, personalised air transport's not too far away either. Um, so that whole mobility, you know, thinking about your, your mobility as a service and what Personalised air transport. Yeah, and so that's being trialled at the moment. So there's a race on to, uh, you know, you saw the drones in Abu Dhabi, you know, in Dubai with the police officers. Uh, I think there's, you know, trials potentially happening. This uh, is not close a useful to thing to say, though, is it? Because, because I'm not going to buy an I'm not going to buy the electric vehicle because I'm going to be hanging out for the personalised air transporter. Well, I think this, the point is that uh, there'll be some people who want an EV and there'll be some people who end up wanting to be picked up from their, um, from their own house and, you know, almost be like an Uber of uh, sheer taxes. This is this not guy. what I expected from somebody from the Ministry for the Environment. She's talking about a technological fix, ladies and gentlemen. And this is not what I ever thought I'd hear you say. But it brings us on to an important issue technological fixes. Do we need to hang out for them or do we need to change our behaviour now? Jim. I think both. I, I don't think you need, it's not a coin toss you, you need to make. We need to act now and we need to do what's within our capability. But you know, there are people who say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll have the vaccination to stop the cows melching, belching yeah, their methane. Sure. And we'll have the personalised air transportation so we won't have to build roads anymore and everything will be fine. Yeah, but you've, you've got to live within what you can foresee right now. And if you just wait for everything, I, I just don't think you, you'll achieve anything. So yes, we're all working on different future things that we're aware of, waiting to see how those models evolve, waiting to see when they tip. All of these things seem to take longer to tip than you intuitively think. Um, but we've got to get on and do things now because the problem is here now. But and so I, I don't think it's a coin toss. I agree, and I think New Zealanders kind of want to do that. You know, we've seen that with plastic bags. We're not waiting until there's a new um, way of uh, having our groceries put into, you know, um, biodegradable bags. Consumers actually have driven uh, New World and Countdown coming out and saying we're going to phase these out. So I think... I mean, people want to do things in New Zealand. That's my experience. And so, I mean, that's an interesting example you raise, actually, because there are people who say the government should have done something. The government should have banned those plastic bags. You're saying it's better if people reach decisions by themselves? Well, I don't know about you, Kim, but when somebody tells me to do something, I don't tend to do it. Yeah, or I, if I, I do it, I've I do that. the very minimum thing that you've asked me to do, because I don't like authority. And most Kiwis, I think, we, I mean, that whole piece of um, power in the consumer's hands, and uh, it's much better, well, from my point of view, much better that we don't have to regulate everything in order to get change. There is, because the world is changing so fast that regulation will never keep up with that. And so we need people to 
nudge into different behaviour uh, and drive some of uh, the you know, consumers can drive some of the change here. But you also don't want to terrify the wits out of people too much so that they become paralysed and unable to change. No, and no I think that's, that's right. You've got to co-create the future with them. That's the really thing. We've got to think big and start today. And the, the best way of understanding what the future is going to look like is, you know, we create it together. And I think that is where technology and behaviour change go hand in hand. And you don't do stuff to people, you do it with them. There are unintended consequences from technology, of course. And a lot of people are averse to seeing it as part of the solution because of that. Have you got examples of how technology can positively and without unintended consequences help the situation? I mean, even EVs are a moot point because they still have to be manufactured, right? What are you going to do with your old cars? It's a huge period of wasted resources before there's any gain. Yeah, but um, that's still about getting things done now and living with what we've got. But look at it at its simplest. Look what LED lights are doing for us now. And that's a pretty minor tech change, but it's really enhancing or reducing the power use and enabling us to live within the hydro resources we've got rather than having to build coal-fired or whatever other options. So look, there's small examples like that right through to the big ones and Martin I know is thinking a lot about mobility as a shared service and automated cars and all the benefits that come from those things. But they're things that we, we'll worry about stranding assets on the way through but we've still got to act now and do those, all those smaller steps. Yeah. And just to add to what Jim said, I think if you look at what the UK has done, where they've just banned, said no more petrol cars after 2040, it's giving people time to adapt and find the technical solutions, but also change their behaviour. just gives them long enough to do it. That, that kind of contradicts what we were just saying, of course, doesn't it? That there is a time for the government to say this is the line in the sand and this is what's going to happen. I mean, the UK government also has a Climate Change Act, which uh, has, you know, a commission for climate change and it has carbon budgets and it has targets and it has accountability if those targets aren't met. It's clearly a great deal more worried, committed, authoritarian than we are. All of those, but it has a much higher population density. Does that make it more necessary to be authoritarian? Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> I mean, really, yes, it has, you know, like 60 million people or whatever, but what is the difference? It's, it's not my field particularly, but I think that if you look at highly uh, concentrated urban areas, then there is perhaps less democracy in those than in areas like New Zealand where population density is relatively low. Except that, of course. I do think the problem's a lot more noticeable where you've got greater urban concentrations. But also the opportunities are, are greater, right? Yeah, but, it, but yeah. it's also it was built uh, um, some time ago with old tech. I mean, one of the great opportunities that Auckland's got is we're going to intensify with modern tech and modern thinking and we've got the one-off shot of delivering intensity with good amenity, with good sustainable environment, with good sustainable assets and do it extremely well. 
and we'd have failed miserably if we repeat all of those mistakes we can visibly see who were built when the technology simply wasn't understood or there. Right. Just let's talk about New Zealand Inc. rather than Auckland, accepting that Auckland is a major component, a major stakeholder, a shareholder in that. How, how does New Zealand improve its productivity, improve its, its value while taking climate change seriously in all the ways we've mentioned and more? I think stop debating whether we believe all of this and just accept it, get a common set of facts and launch from there so that we all, you started this evening talking about collective initiative. Um, Martin talked about co-designing our future. I think it's all about how we all work together to land there. And I must say, I personally find it tiring debating whether the issue is as big as it is or it isn't. And, you know, I, I accept there are different ways to get to a better endpoint, but we've just got to absolutely believe and go. And I think reports like that have been launched th this afternoon really help ground a, a, a stable base of fact, and people collectively will move from there. I, have, I mean, I haven't heard anything, sorry, Martin, I, I haven't heard anything tonight that that feels like a sacrifice. It all makes sense if you are people living apart from, you know, giving up meat and dairy produce. Um, it all makes sense to people living in a, in a collective, in a community, and not wanting to waste stuff, because what is the point of that? And, and so it all sounds very constructive, but there's gotta be some sacrifice somewhere, right? What, what is that sacrifice? What does it look like? How are you going to persuade people to give up and what? I'm not sure it's a sacrifice. I mean, some things will be, I'm sure, but I think it's more the absolute call to make a decision to do things a different way and accept that changing patterns, habits, and so forth is hard. Because um, I think you know, we are comfortable with what we do and sometimes ignorant or careless about the consequence of it. I think there's a negative sacrifice in some ways. Like in some ways Aucklanders at the moment, we're being tortured out of our cars by the CRL construction. Because if you try to drive through Auckland Central, it's almost impossible. And so you realise actually- Is that a plot, do you think? Well, I think it's, a, it's an unintended consequence, but in many ways it's a positive one. It's training us to use public transport. You go, actually, this isn't bad. You know, th this works, I can do this. It's not that painful. And so I guess it's kind of, you, you give up pain uh, in exchange for good stuff and that kind of ultimately gets us further ahead. You know, it actually doesn't have to be sacrificing your good living standard, it's actually taking an alternative approach to a, a better life. So I keep coming back to uh, what Rangamari said before, if you take a long view and think about, okay, so um, one of the things that's really important to me in living in New Zealand is having uh, the ability to go and um, uh, get mahanga kai uh, to um, be able to travel 
in a, in a pretty short distance uh, and live quite close to my work and, and where we play. Uh, if you take a long term, enough longer term view, then you basically start to value that into your short term decision making. And that's, that's what New Zealand has the opportunity to do. So it might be a short term sacrifice, as you say. Uh, it might mean that we actually change some of what we do in the next decade. But you know, one thing I know we are good at is adapt, adapting and being innovative and finding new ways of doing different things that mean that actually we take these things into account. And I think that's that's our that's our that's the prize here. Yeah, I think if you are talking about it as a new New Zealand Inc. point of view, New Zealand's a really attractive place to live. As you might tell, I'm not originally from New Zealand. I'm a Welshman by birth, but having worked in and around San Francisco. The cultures aren't too dissimilar to New Zealand, um, but this is just a better, easier standard of life. And if you're trying to rent a property in San Francisco, it's a technology business. If you don't take it there and then, you've lost it. You come to New Zealand and you think about, you know, you've got organizations like Zero based out of Wellington and the CEO, Rod Drury, from the Hawke's Bay. Why aren't we making the regions attractive places to attract high-caliber technology businesses where the work-life balance is phenomenal? and you start to bring highly skilled workers to those regions. Is that a rhetorical question? Why aren't we making the regions more attractive? Have we got a government yet? <laughs> it becomes, you know, technology isn't really geographical specific, and it attracts highly skilled, highly ethical people who are very much environmentally conscious as well um, to come and want to be part of New Zealand. And we don't have any problems attracting people from the US at the moment to come and want to live and work here. And I think that's one of our unique selling points in the future. It is a great place to live and work. What, what worries me about all this is that, and it's, and it's about choice and it's about encouraging people to make the right decision for the future. Um, but you need a certain amount of personal resources to make those choices. How do you, how do you stop the inequities that are clear in New Zealand and clear in Auckland from growing even larger. Any comment on that, anyone? Because they will grow larger. Oh, look, I think that's a fabulous question, uh, Kim. I think the, uh, the piece here, when you, when you link uh, inequity with um, digital uh, innovation, the two are extricably linked. They're linked, right? <laughs> very closely. Uh, they're very closely linked. <laughs> uh, the reality, whether we like it or not, is that digital innovation will be a key part of this world, and it will it will have an impact on the business models that we use, and it will be um, mechanisms for greater efficiencies. That is a, a fact, and I think about AI. AI, in terms of artificial intelligence, in my view, is a global trend that will change the way in which the labour force will move. Uh, so when I think about that, and I think about inequities, and I think about the 250,000 Māori people who are living in uh, Tāmaki alone, when I think about the, the rates of um, educational uh, underachievement, we need to change that landscape really quickly. And digital innovation will do that because digital mediums will allow us to go further and faster. I think the other part about that is that if it's done well enough, particularly in the school environment, schooling doesn't begin at nine and finish at three. Schooling starts before that and ends past that. I have real concerns um, personally as a mother of four uh, and a looking after over 1,500 of our tribal descendants under the age of 18, that not enough of them have those mediums uh, 
and their fingertips to be able to even think about how do we, when we know that this digital revolution is going to influence communications, transportation and energy, the reality is if we're not clear about how those children are embarking, becoming digital natives in that space, they will not be able to get to the point where you choose whether you want a Tesla that can charge in a flash apartment or whether you've got an electric car. That will not be a choice. So I think uh, sacrifice is not really the right word for me. I think this is about changing, changing perceptions, behaviours and norms uh, in the city so that actually our babies, because all of us... We're all adults here, right? I've got no, my kids aren't screaming, so I know they're not in the, they're not in the crowd. Uh, but I think sometimes we're trying to have a conversation around the converted, where in actual fact, the conversation belongs in the hearts of our babies. Our babies, my baby, my seven-year-old has been the one that's influenced the buying of these bags. Uh, she is just fanatical. We walk into the supermarket, we don't, have, we don't have the bag, we don't get the things mum wants, we're out of there. Uh, they are the ones that are changing behaviours and that's where true leadership, true change and true sophistication is going to occur uh, in this. That's how you're going to get the shift. Sanctimonious kids, don't you hate them? David, you were saying earlier that, that one of the groups of people who, who are really wanting the type of impact investment that you're offering of the millennials. There seems to have been a sea change in, in that generation. I think there has, very much so. They're, they have much stronger value codes. They're growing up in a society where in many countries in the Western world, our children and their children are looking at having a lower standard of living than their parents for the first time since the Second World War. So you're seeing it now in the way that people invest, and you're seeing it increasingly in supply chain procurement, where it's also going the same way, where you're asking the supermarket where they buy their coffee, where they buy their groceries, their supplies that they sell to you, how it's all produced. So everybody coming up behind us is becoming more and more aware of environmental and social inequalities and wants us to do something. So much to say, so little time. If we bring the lights up, there may, I hope, be questions from the audience, and I'll be able to see if anybody's putting their hand up with a question, and there will no doubt be microphones en route to you if you have any questions from any of the panel. There's a, there's a question, well, you pick them out because I can barely see. Um, hi there, so my name's Dam Damien Light. Um, my question is um, around um, power generation and renewable energy. Um, I had the privilege recently of going to um, Taipei in Taiwan, and the, the council there is um, investing in intelligent green housing, particularly for their state housing. Um, so all their buildings have solar panels, they're eco-efficient, and they're effectively self-contained power stations, so they completely run themselves. What do they call that passive, eh? Well, they call it, I think they called it intelligent design okay. or intelligent, I can't remember the term we use for it, but really, really clever. And it's just one of those things I think we need to see more of. Um, and I'm just interested in what we can do from a property point of view and a, and a, um, a council point of view to make that um, the default so that we're building um, better um, futures, I guess. Thank you. Um, yeah, we have, Daisy is a nine home star uh, property and it has solar panels on the roof, which power the common area, um, power the lift, power the uh, common um, 
What's the word I'm after? Sorry, completely failing to get that one. It's um, also providing a common, sorry, a common central hot water heating. And then we've got um, a heat exchange system which enables us to manage the climate control by basically draws in cold air and exchanges it for the warm stuff uh, to manage the heating process. It is, it's been quite an exercise to achieve it. And the interesting thing is finding people in the market that value it because you've got to trade off to a certain degree between that and um, what people are prepared to pay for and can afford in the affordable housing space. And Daisy's been an interesting experiment for us. Um, how can you make that the standard? I guess it is about people actually demanding that uh, in the marketplace, but also it comes down to scale, being able to do that so that you don't have to choose between a house or a sustainable house, uh, so that actually you, know, you can afford something which is a house and it is sustainable. I'll jump in for this one. Um, look, we've just done a um, we've just done a housing development in, in Orake, uh, not more than five kilometres along the waterfront here, and uh, was funded by the tribe, by Ngāti Whātua in Orake, and we developed 30 medium density homes, and we we have a philosophy about uh, being sustainable and living that as a practice and its design and its concept and actually in the way that people live. We've trialled, uh, we've got, um, so we've got the solar panels, but we've also got the Tesla. We're the first ones to trial the Tesla batteries in the home, and uh, that has been fantastic. I think uh, in terms of the design, we also wanted to make sure that it was appropriate for intergenerational living. We, you know, it's cool that Nan lives with the kids, that lives with the grandkids, and they all grow up together. Uh, we also made sure that all of our planting was native plants, which we grew on our nursery, which is, you know, obviously got a carbon footprint because it's only about five. 500 metres down the road. We also used swales because we wanted to make sure that when the water, any kind of stormwater, left uh, those homes in that development, it would be clean because that water was going into the Waitemata and the Waitemata is our ancestor. Uh, so we were not happy that the idea that we would continually perpetuate polluting uh, the Waitemata was, was not good. So we've, we've been able to do that. The other thing I think is that we have um, set a standard, a housing standard for us that allows us to be, uh, the homes to be high quality. So we've been, um, we've had some really great architects come on board. We have had all of the best uh, technology because the other reality for us too was too many of our kids were being susceptible to what I call third world diseases. Rheumatic fever as a result, or preventable illnesses, as a result of mouldy, damp, cold homes is not a reality. I think the other intelligent part for uh, what I think our tribal leaders have done is that you have to put some money in. If you want that to be the standard, that requires you to give something up. So uh, the homes, the land that is on there for us, uh, we put the land in and said it's an absolute privilege to one, live on your tribal land, two, to live in a community, and three, be a part of this, what I say, uh, an ecological and sustainable future. Uh, so I think that's what New Zealand offers because we have a small population, uh, we have a close population, you can't go very far 
uh, in this country without knowing anyone. There's a beauty in that, and I think there is a real desire, um, and I would hope it's a desire here for Tāmaki, that we all want to be a really close community. So when I think about Taipei, and I think about other Asian countries, and I think about population, and I think about us, there's no excuse. There is really no excuse. It's just about uh, how much we prepare to do it and how quick we're all going to put something in to allow it to occur. Thank you. There's a hand up at the back there. Will somebody else first stand up and talk into the microphone? Hi, my name's Chris. Um, I live in Auckland, um, and I'm aware it sits between two harbours. And sea level rise seems to me to be something that hasn't quite been mentioned here tonight. Um, I'm not to be a sanctimonious 60-year-old, but I actually walk around and bike around the harbour edge here a bit, and I notice how high around the Wynyard Quarter that the water gets on the harbour, and I watch the developments going on down there, the buildings, and I've looked at the plans, and I don't see anything about what we're going to do about wave surge and the sea getting higher. So I was just interested how um, that factors into these conversations. Good question. I think that's a question for Jim Quinn, Chief of Strategy. Yeah, look, it's certainly an, an issue I'm involved in a planning exercise somewhere else in the world and just supporting them and I know they've made the fundamental call because they're thinking 100 years out at the moment uh, that they'll uh, turn commercial and residential land into parkland because they, unlike that part of the world, have decided this time not to engineer their way out of it and they'll let nature have it back in the 100 year zone. So I think what you'll see is uh, Governments in the widest sense of the world really think about this. There's a lot of monitoring happening, certainly a lot of uh, thinking in terms of how close to the tide mark we can be in, in our unitary plan, and there will be more and more of that as we think ahead. I think you're right, though. I don't think it's a debate that's being had in the community in any structured way yet. And It's talked about. People think about it. Um, and I think at the moment people are more concerned about storm surge because that's what they see first. And I think the long-term risk of inundation is something that people will think about. And, you know, uh, some people will say that technology will fix this before we get there, answering the way Kim asked, asked earlier. I think it would be a brave call to just wait and pray that we can fix it with technology. So, so Jim, are you, are you just banking on people going... Nah, that's too close to the water. We don't want to rent there or build there. Or is the, is the council going to put strictures down, per se? I know we, we, think, we think hard about what land we allow to be used, what floodplain risk there is now. The unitary plan covers large tracts of that. I think the concern more is the really long term. Yeah. Um, and, and also responding to historical decisions that have been made maybe not as well informed as we can be now as well. So we're caught in all of those things and we, we deal with, with all of them. But uh, I, I think, be assured it's being thought about, it's being planned for. I just don't think we've engaged enough yet and I don't think we're ready to either. Uh, Martin, did you want to add to that? No. <laughs> um, 
Did, did somebody else put their hand up out there? Yes. Microphone's on its way. Uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, ka mihi nui ki rangamarie. Matty Wall is my name. A question for the panel as an impatient 65-year-old on 067. How urgent, how urgent do you think this topic is? We'll take it from, from one end and go, no, Rangamaria, seize the microphone. First, Matty, I might not be able to see you, but you look 35, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. Now, look, I think this is critical, and I think this is a, a very cool conversation to be having here. I think it needs to be uh, wider spread. I think there needs to be a practicality element about what do we do when we get back into, uh, in, into the homes. I think it's too obvious in the city of Tāmaki uh, to not be having this conversation. I think about sea level changes. In actual fact, you know, earlier in the year, we were, f we were trying to use buckets to f for our urupa that had gone underwater. Now, this is not, uh, you know, the impact that your ancestors are now um, underwater because of a whole lot of things does create a level of urgency that isn't about the, uh, whether a building is going up. It's kind of a lot more fundamental. So I think, um, I think people are getting it. I think it's critical. I'm just not sure uh, that we're partnering in the right way to get the different results. We partner in the same way and expect exceptionally different results. That's yeah, I, and I think it, look, it's urgent, there's no doubt. I th the problem is it is vast and I think you can overwhelm yourself. So I think you need, there's stuff that is right now urgent must be done, we need to act. There's stuff that we need to be planning for and doing and we need, it's broad and it's long and we need to just keep moving, but we need to have a plan and so the strategy part of it is key as well. Just as the, the, the new boy in New Zealand to put one perspective, because I think it's all very urgent, but I heard a very pertinent comment yesterday at a seminar in Wellington where a very prominent lady said that Naitahu started thinking seriously about climate change when they realized their Maunga Oiraki would be without snow in 25 years. I think for me, absolutely, it's urgent, and we definitely need a plan, but it needs to be a joined-up plan. There's lots of planning being done in isolation. It needs to be more of a cohesive plan across all agencies, local and central government. Yeah, I agree. Right. Jim's had alluded to earlier, the, um, Auckland has a huge opportunity right now. We, we are intensifying now. Now is the time to have this conversation because we're going to be awfully, look awfully silly in 25 years' time if we forgot and uh, start sort of, you know, as you say, um, intensifying right on the edge of the water. Um, we have a government, by the way. Mm. Well, I don't know about that. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's New Zealand First and Labour and the Greens. So it's going to be an interesting um, few months. There was a question over there. Yeah. Microphone coming. Just here.
Okay, this is great. Let's have this conversation. So, where could a city hub for Auckland be that's on higher land that we could start thinking about with transport nodes now? Oh. Well, there's acres of land that's well above sea level, so I don't think the, I don't think the where could it be issue is so, so big. The, the issue is on the edges, clearly, because we are, as somebody said, surrounded by coast. So, um, yeah, look, I think it, it's not about moving wholesale or doing anything to, in that regard, in my view. It's about thinking through where the risks are and, and, and having a managed view over the long term. No, I mean, that didn't sound terribly urgent, Jim. Well, yeah, so with all due respect. Yeah, yeah, but it's not... An, I, it's important that we talk about it and it's important that we plan for it. It's not here today, and so we, we need to be sensible and manage uh, the different aspects of this. I think we've got far more urgent issues right now, and that is the quality of the water, uh, the quality of the air, the pla plastic bags. There's all sorts of things right now that are real issues for us this minute. That's not to diminish the other ones. I think we just need to step through things in a really clear way and think about when when and what we're going to do for those whens. Okay. Another question? Yep, at the back there. Thank you. Kia ora, thank you. Um, I did have two questions, um, but the second one just got a little bit more important. Um, I just wondered from a government and a local government perspective, what would a zero carbon act uh, mean for you guys and how would you respond to that from your various departments? This is a zero carbon act, which like the UK legislation would set targets, but they would be zero, tar zero carbon by say 2050, something like that. Is that what you're thinking? I take that as a yes. Anybody commenting? Well, I think the, the simple answer is the more targeted we get and the more regulatory it gets, the more we have to make sure we have a plan that achieves that. So um, I, I don't think it changes the pro problem. It just changes the urgency, the need for resource to achieve that, um, and focuses on that specific thing. And as Vicky said earlier, it is only one of the things. So um, it, that's not a bad thing to f focus on. But it, you know we've got all of these things to f focus on, whether it's the quality of our uh, water, our sea, uh, the, the Gulf, all of the, those things. Carbon isn't the only issue. Well, no, but climate change Absolutely. is yeah, the agree. existential issue. Yep, and if we do have an ongoing Labour, New Zealand First and Greens government, the chances of legislation might appear to be slightly higher than hitherto. Do you think that's a good idea, Vicky? Well, I think um, uh, what the targets are in that legislation is going to be quite important. So I, I noticed that Green, the Green Party has quite a different one from the Labour Party, so we'll see what shakes out of that. Um, I think uh, the underlying thing behind having targets and legislation really gets at the the issue that we've had in New Zealand, which is a lack of cross-partisan, uh, you know, bipartisan agreement to uh, that we need to get on the pathway to climate change. So I think... Um, you know, depending what the end up the target is, if we, you know, you can achieve that through different mechanisms. One of them is having legislative targets. Uh, but I think the, the underlying point of political certainty that we are going to move to action and a pathway towards a low emissions economy is the critical point. 
There was another question. Oh, yeah, one, one of our other of us got a clap. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Did you want to say something? No, I'm just teasing. No. Rangamani. There was, yeah, hand up at the back there. Kia ora koutou. My name's Anna. Um, I'm just wanting to get your comments on pricing. And um, what I'm thinking is when we talk about behaviour change, there's only a very small proportion of the population that are interested in doing something drastic for behaviour change. And we can go back to that question about would you stop eating meat? Um, that's a really good example of population at large. So I think behaviour change only does a very small little bit. And then we had um, comments around um, from Vicky about, I don't like being told what to do, because if I'm told what to do, I don't want to do it. Uh, and then Helen was talking about... Um, with a CRL and, and, and that that creates a crisis, a crisis which then forces you to make different decisions and you're not exactly making a sacrifice, you're just trying to make the best decision given the, the um, situation that's there. So what I'm wanting to understand um, from you is what are your thoughts about pricing in order to um, affect behaviour change which maybe doesn't, isn't so much about sacrifice, it's just about making decisions with the situation that you have. Um, I, I think if I lead, I'm involved in the view of the, the any view of whether we institute congestion cha charging, and you'll know that came out of the Auckland Transport Alignment pro Program. I think what, there's no doubt that pricing designed well can influence behaviour. It's also clear that pricing designed badly or too blunt a club will almost always have unintended consequences. So I think the key thing is, do I think pricing is a place? It's one of the tools. It's got a great place. It will drive behaviours. Just be really sure you want the outcome you design for. Um, and we that's, that's, that's the work we're, we're working through in that one area now, but there's no doubt there are other parts. ETS-type things have, have their place as well, and they'll work best if they're comprehensive and really have the right behaviours driven. You've got to be so careful with pricing, because pricing definitely can be a lever to influence behaviour, but are you so careful to provide alternatives, to provide the alternative you actually want to encourage the use of, or you actually just introduce inequality uh, and make it harder for people who are already struggling uh, to get from A to B or to do whatever it is that they need to do. So there have to be alternatives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it has to be a conversation about, you know, New Zealand Inc, Auckland Inc, um, subsidising the amenity for people to transfer to. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is price is a very important lever for how people make choice, because uh, that's what it is about. But also, you know, the time, the quality of the experience and the environmental sustainability of the choices that you're making are also important drivers. We I mean, need to make sure people are formed around what, how they play out as well, around not just pricing in isolation. There's a question here, and we'll need to make it the last one. So make it a very good one, no pressure. I'll try my very best. Bolovinaka, everyone. I'm Ziteri Tikova. I'm from Fiji. I represent Nature Fiji Marangetiviti, um, Fiji's only local membership conservation um, NGO. And of course, uh, as a conservation NGO, you know, I will always try to make you think about nature and uh, other species that make our place our home. Um, first question, 
Um, I hear that there are so much efforts towards uh, technological uh, solutions. Uh, what about, what are you doing about uh, encouraging natural solutions? Nature has a way of fixing itself if you enable it to, and I'm just wondering if uh, there'd be more efforts uh, towards um, this, natural solutions. Could you be uh, more specific about what you're thinking? As natural solutions? Mm. Reforesting um, areas that are degraded, uh, better land use management, um, maybe thinking, uh, being careful about our pesticide use, all of those factors. And another thing about pricing, uh, very interesting to hear, you know, the issues, uh, you know, a change in behavior and sacrifice. Uh, just, I just wanted to remind you that in Fiji, it's great that you get to choose whether to eat meat or not. In Fiji, in the Pacific, we get to lose our homes. And if that's not a big enough price, I don't know what is. Thank you. It's, it's a fair point, the, the natural solution. I don't know whether the panel think that things have gone too far for that. I don't think the natural solutions are being ignored per se. We, we are aware. It comes back to land use, of course, doesn't it? Yeah, but saying, they're, they're not being. I think uh, some, uh, the million trees is part of using nature more, the urban forest program. So there's a range of things. I, I, look, as we've said all night, I just don't think there's a single answer. We have to, we have to do everything to reverse what's been done, to continue to develop more, and we need to think both about what's in the now and, and long, because there, there's no silver bullet here. I, I, sorry, Vicky. Um, I just want to say thank you for sharing and just reminding us that you know there are, there are impacts outside of New Zealand that are really uh, severe um, than what we're currently experiencing. There is a Trees That Count initiative too at the moment uh, that had an um, aim of having 4.7 million trees in the ground over this last year and they've put in 8 million trees um, over this last year so that's pretty phenomenal. There's also some amazing work that's going on around Motoranga Māori and learning of our own um, uh, you know, cultural heritage about how you might think about um, uh, preserving and conserving and um, making decisions about nature. So I think those are, and bringing in some of those indicators into our, our, our decision making, um, and some of that is actually coming through in terms of the reporting that we're doing with stats. Um, so I think those are good starts for us. Thank you, and thank you for that as well. Um, I, I think that it's easy to think that it's all about us. And although we are a small country, as we've been hearing tonight, we can exemplify something that may, who knows, embarrass or encourage or shame others into doing similar things. Um, I quoted the sainted Al Gore earlier as going from, or warning against going from, uh, denial to despair in one easy step. And I think that the conversation we've had tonight proves that there is a stop between those two. Uh, given the stats, we'd all be forgiven for heading for despair. But, you know, if the problem is so great and we have to change so much about how we do things, it's all impossible. But 
Maybe it is about the journey and not the destination. Maybe there is no destination. Maybe it's the collective striving that will be sufficient. It's about demonstrating willingness and commitment and there will be, we talk about tipping points in terms of the climate, you know, is it too late, is it too late? Well, we could have a tipping point here in Auckland. We could have a tipping point beyond which people would be unable not to do something constructive, whether it be constructive within their own community or constructive within New Zealand. Um, our most recent governments, of course, have found it too hard to stick to their own targets and they've taken a less than urgent approach to climate change. Can New Zealanders act without a government mandate? Well, I think the conversation tonight has shown that we can. And besides, we've had a government for several weeks, we haven't had one at all. So <laughs> it kind of puts the relevance of the government in, um, in perspective. I want to thank our, uh, our speakers, uh, Vicky Robertson and Liz McPherson earlier, and Vicky, of course, on the panel as well, with Rangi Marie and Helen and David and Martin and Jim. Uh, thank you to the audience here, as well as online, and to the sponsors and supporters of Auckland Conversations. Um, next up, by way of an advertisement, Wednesday, November the 15th, the topic, Creating Safe Streets for Auckland, and it features Dr. Matt Ake Berlin, who's a project leader for Vision Zero Academy. Uh, and if you keep an eye on the Auckland Conversations website, you can get more details in advance. Thank you all for coming tonight, and enjoy the rest of your evening. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.